0: More turbulent. The economic statistics. The triple
1: debt recession. Collapsing commodities.
2: Monetary policy
0: has to do the heavy
2: lifting work. Money for nothing.
3: Good morning and welcome to Friday's Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra Hora. Amazon.com reports a surprise profit and a jump in sales and its shares surge. U.S. stocks fall on earnings results and the metal route, and the Nikkei agrees to buy the FT Group from Pearson for $1.3 billion. This morning, we'll have uh, DZ Bank's Andrew Kosser give us his perspective on markets. That's before Memphis-based wealth management firm Waddle & Associates, David Waddle, joins us with uh, various uh, insight on investment opportunities and uh, fees involved. Richard Harris is our guest host today. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Rini. Uh, Richard, how much of a big deal is Pearson's sale of the FT to the Nikkei?
4: Well, uh, for Pearson, it's really just a complete cash trade. I mean, they've done very little with the FT and just let it go on by itself. Uh, uh, And it's been extremely successful, partly because they went global early. And then when the digital revolution came along, they were already global, so it sort of fitted into it. So um, it's, for them, it's really just a cash deal. Uh, uh, Nikkei, who bought it, paid five times what the Wall Street Journal was worth five years ago, so you can see where the value was in that company.
3: But is this a good move? I mean, Pearson is an education oriented company um, whereas the Nikkei is obviously focused on journalism, so one would think that this would be the right thing to do from a strategic standpoint. You you would have
4: thought so. I think what uh, people in the FT will be biting their fingernails about is the whole issue of editorial independence. Pearson held it as an asset, so uh, whatever happened, whatever happened with the paper, and papers occasionally get to controversies, Pearson stood by them. Uh, Nikkei are going to have to realise that the value they've put into that company means that they have to maintain that strategy of editorial independence.
3: All right, well, Amazon.com has surpassed Walmart as the world's biggest retailer by market value after reporting an unexpected second quarter profit on top of sales that beat analysts' estimates. The online retail giant reported a profit of $92 U.S. million, up from a $126 million loss last year. Bloomberg's Remy Innocencio takes a look at the numbers.
1: Amazon Q2 earnings are out. And looking at earnings per share, they beat estimates coming in at 19 cents a share. The estimate there uh, for earnings per share was a loss of 14 cents, in fact. Uh, Looking at revenue uh, coming out at $23.19 billion, the mean estimate there was $22.4 billion. uh, So that beats that. Uh, So those are the numbers crossing the Bloomberg terminal just right now. Amazon Q2 earnings are out, looking like a beat on both EPS as well as revenue.
3: 19 cents a share. That gives the Seattle-based company a value of about $267 billion. Compare that with Walmart's $233.5 billion market valuation. Sales in North America rose 25.5% to $13.8 billion, helped by a strong demand for electronics and general merchandise. And the fast-growing cloud computing revenue soared 81.5% to $1.82 billion. And to McDonald's, whose new boss says that his turnaround plan is showing early signs of taking hold. Since taking the helm in March, McDonald's CEO Steve Easterbrook has vowed to turn the world's biggest fast food group into a modern progressive burger company. But Mr. Easterbrook conceded that the company's second quarter results were disappointing. Here's Remy again
1: investors definitely are loving the news from what they're hearing. They reported Q2 results at 8 a.m. Eastern shares now reacting up about 1.2 percent here. The burger chain actually posted earnings of $1.26 a share that beat the street's estimate of $1.23. With that said for Q2, comparable store sales did uh, miss estimates falling 2 percent. Analysts did expect a one and a half percent drop. After today's results, CEO Steve Easterbrook did add the company will return to growth in the second half of
3: and coming to automobiles, General Motors says that second quarter profit jumped to 2.9 billion U.S. dollars from 1.4 billion a year earlier. And the jump was powered by continued strength in China and by North American truck sales. GM's uh, reaffirmed its forecast that this year's full year will be an improvement on last year's 9.3 billion. And it remains upbeat on China, despite a uh, slower than expected vehicle sales and uh, intensifying price competition in the world's largest vehicle market. GM says that profit margins in China have improved to 10.2% from 10% a year ago, and it's committed to spending $14 billion on new vehicles and facilities in China in the next few years. Richard, are all or most automobile companies now dependent on the Chinese market for growth? Well, I'm not
4: so sure if they're dependent, but they... There's certainly growth there and they're investing uh, as such. The key question, of course, is whether they're going to make any money out of it because I think it's been quite difficult to make money even if you've had uh, substantial volumes and that's the big question I think people are going to be asking in the boardrooms.
3: It was a different story to GM at Hyundai Motor, which says that uh, the second quarter earnings sank by 24 percent because of a sales drop in China, where local vehicles have enjoyed strong growth. It also blamed weakness in other markets due to falling currencies. Hyundai's uh, second quarter net income was one point seven nine trillion uh, one point, Excuse me, 1.79 trillion won, which is about uh, 1.54 billion U.S. dollars. Sales stayed nearly flat at 22.8 trillion won, and while uh, the operating income dropped 16 percent. Well, U.S. stocks fell for a third straight session after disappointing earnings from Caterpillar and American Express. The Dow lost 0.7 uh, percent to 17,731. The S&P dropped 0.6% to 2,102, and the Nasdaq lost 0.5% to 5,146. Well, the owners of the Financial Times uh, have sold the newspaper to the Japanese group Nikkei for 1.3 billion U.S. dollars. The British company Pearson owns a series of business publications which were part of the sale, but it'll retain its 50 percent stake in The Economist magazine. The BBC's Theo Leggett reports. Pearson
4: has owned the Financial Times since 1957. However, the company says it now wants to focus on its large education services business. It's decided to sell the FT Group, which also includes a number of lesser titles, to the Japanese firm Nikkei, which owns a selection of leading business publications in Asia. The FT Group is profitable, but Pearson says the explosive growth of mobile and social media has brought the industry to what it calls an inflection
5: point.
3: Claire Anders is a media analyst, and she was asked if the Nikkei has paid too much for the Financial Times. It's
5: not paying too much because it's not a publicly quoted company with the same kinds of ideas that, say, Thomson Reuters or Bloomberg would have. No, it it has had a 20 year relationship with the Financial Times, and they know each other very well. It, It fits extremely well. With their core journalistic activity, which, as you know, is entirely focused on business and financial news, which is which is in fact the Financial Times's core focuses as well. You know, so they, in a way, for Nikkei, this is a way of extending their you know business empire you know into a much stronger global space, and you know Japanese companies, as we saw when Denso bought Aegis prefer to buy very top-quality global brands, and and they don't tend to tinker with them all that much. And they really, these businesses know each other very well, and they have been in partnership for such a long time. So, you know, Nikkei is essentially going to keep the financial time safe for all time.
3: And closer to home, ever since the Chinese government came in to support stocks, Chinese markets have been staging a slow and somewhat sneaky stock market rally. But ISI's senior managing director Donald Strasheim says buyer beware.
0: A year ago, the Shanghai Composite was 2000. It ran up and made it to 5,178 on June 12. Came, started to come down, kind of panic out on July 4th. Big meeting and trying to break BRAKE, break the fall in equity prices. They broke BROKE, the markets. So the markets in China now are not really markets. They are government operations. Uh, 19% of all the stocks are still halted. You can't trade them. If you are an insider, you are frozen for six months. Sorry, Tom, You can't. I know you want to sell your stock. You can't do it. It's over.
3: All right, let's uh, bring in our first guest of the morning, Andrew Kasser, who is the chief market strategist for Capital Markets Asia at DZ Bank. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning to you. Andrew, you know, these fears that Strasheim is exhibiting with regard to China, are they warranted?
2: I would say that they are warranted because many people invest in stock markets with the view that they are going to be freely able to access the market, to to enter the market and get out to take profits or cut their losses when they want to. And that's not the case at the moment. Richard?
4: Um, Some people have been saying that the China market is so unstable
2: that it could lead to contagion in other markets around the world. What's your view? I think there's limited scope for contagion because of the capital controls that China has in place for foreign investors it's not an easy market to get into and it's not an easy market to get out of now as we can see <laughs> for the for the domestic economy i think the number of chinese people that have significant investments in the The local stock market is relatively small in relation to the population. Most people have more conservative assets on their book, less volatile ones. So I'm not expecting a significant wealth effect to be hitting the Chinese economy hard in the course of the next several months.
3: Andrew, the commodity implosion, is this at all urgent for China or not so much, given that they're a big buyer of commodities?
2: China is a significant net importer of commodities, so weaker prices suit them quite nicely over the long term. And for some other economies, for example, Australia, it's a much more serious problem. But the Reserve Bank of Australia has been taking policy steps there to try to support the domestic economy by lowering interest rates over the last several months.
3: And futures this morning are signaling that Asian stocks will retreat with crude oil in a bear market. What are you expecting?
2: Um, I'd go along with the market consensus on that, although I have to say I'm not a specialist in the local equity markets.
3: All
4: right, Richard. Uh, just uh, moving on to Europe, which is where your your bank 's uh, home is. Uh, it looks as if European earnings are coming through at maybe as much as fifteen to twenty percent
2: uh, in the second quarter. That sounds pretty positive. It is a pretty positive story. Many European companies have used the last several years to look at their costs, uh, squeeze them quite hard. And with a little bit of recovery, the increase in sales is dropping through to the bottom line relatively quickly. So, Have we seen that
4: reflected in the stock market?
2: Uh, Most European markets are up a reasonable amount this year. I I must admit, um, with uh, 17 countries in the Eurozone, I don't look at each one. But I think until recently, the DAX, for example, uh, the main German index, has been doing pretty well.
4: I guess with the, uh, hopefully, temporary settlement in Greece, we could actually see a pop in Europe. A dramatic improvement
2: in the European equity markets?
4: No, just because the sentiment in Greece has been so bad that if we see some kind of settlement there that's maybe longer than five minutes, which has been the case for the rest of the year, we could actually see those markets recover quite strongly.
2: That's a possibility, but uh, considering the history of Greece and its crisis for the last five years, I wouldn't be betting my bottom dollar on that one just yet. There's still a long way to go until they've negotiated their next bailout and there could even be a general election this autumn which could unsettle the sentiment.
3: Uh, Andrew, you know, to Richard's point about contagion earlier, uh, you know, something that you weren't so concerned about, you know, contagion out of China. um, If not contagion, word definitely has it that international investors are pulling out of China, fueling record outflows through the Shanghai Hong Kong exchange link and instead plowing their money into India. Would you say that China's pain is India's gain?
2: there's probably going to be a certain amount of money that flows out of China into a market which has had a reasonably good run over the long term. But a lot of people were looking at the new Indian Prime Minister, although he's not so new anymore, Mr Modi, to significantly improve the outlook for the Indian stock market with some macroeconomic reforms. That hasn't really started to gain traction yet. So perhaps I think people are looking at uh, two of the big BRIC economies. One's not looking so good at the moment... Mm. I think Russia's off limits for many. So, well, let's look at India. I think maybe one of the ideas that's going through some investors' minds.
3: So where else could we see outflows going to?
2: Well, let's uh, think about, for example, a near neighbor, which is not doing too badly. It's a recovery story. Japan, the stock market there has uh, been performing quite well so far this year. And uh, we can probably look at a few other smaller regional markets as likely beneficiaries, ones which have more solid fundamental underpinnings.
4: What's your view on currencies? Uh, Of course, there's been a big consensus the US dollar is going to go up, but it kind of looks as if
2: maybe that's not the case. Currency market has been a tricky one as ever this year. And uh, for the end of this year, we're looking for the euro against the US dollar, which is the most actively traded currency pair to head towards 104 from it's about 109ish at the moment, so a modest depreciation, and that's mainly linked to the fact that we we think there'll be upward pressure on US interest rates uh, in the course of the rest of the year, which would strengthen the dollar uh, on that basis. And US interest rates, what are you? Well, where are your chips falling, September or December? The that House view is actually Q1 next year. We're taking a relatively uh, dovish view on how the Federal Open Markets Committee is going to play its interest rate settings, with the main factor being low inflation pressure, meaning that the Fed doesn't have to worry about tightening this year.
3: And why is that? Why are you looking at next year, specifically Q1?
2: Q1... Well, partly because by the end of this year we're looking for the US economy to be in a position where it's growing pretty strongly and the inflation outlook, which is really what the Fed is interested in, to be looking more positive than it does now.
3: All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Andrew Kosser, and he is the Chief Market Strategist for Capital Markets Asia at DZ Bank. Time to take a quick look at the numbers now. The Nikkei is down 4 tenth of a percent this morning to 20,607. Australia's ASX 200 index down one-tenth of a percent to 5,575. And Seoul's Kospi also down 2 tenth of a percent to 2060 in currencies one euro is currently valued at 1.09 u.s dollars the u.s dollar is trading at 123.88 yen and one pound sterling buys you 12 hong kong dollars and three cents and one u.s dollar and 55 cents well we'll be back to talk more about the fees associated with wealth management that's right after this
5: the government is proposing to legislate on security
3: of payment in the construction industry so that service providers can receive timely payment when works are completed. The ordinance will introduce an adjudication system to speed up settlement of disputes, covering construction works for the government, public bodies, and new building works over $5 million for the private sector. The government is conducting a public consultation. You're welcome to give your views only before August 31st, 2015. For details, please visit the
5: Development Bureau website.
0: Come on, you
3: i um, definitely looking forward to the weekend. The time is now 8.21 a.m. And when it comes to managing your wealth, the question is, do you want to pay fees? Our next guest is visiting Hong Kong. He's normally based in the U.S. So let's bring in fees-only wealth management Waddle & Associates CEO, David Waddle. Good morning, David. Good morning.
0: Thank you for having me.
3: Thanks for joining us on Money for Nothing. So, uh, David, you know, yours is a boutique fee-only wealth management. Management firm in the US. What does this mean? What is the difference between fees and commissions?
0: Well, I think specifically in our business model, we analyze clients first and securities second. So we spend a lot of time as lawyers, accountants, certified financial planners, trying to figure out what rate of return the client needs and then use the market to build portfolios to deliver on those returns that ends up being a service model which is more conducive to to fees and not commissions which is more of a product sale model.
3: Why is that? Because you're not act, you're, you're not acting in the interest of simply pushing product.
0: We have no product. So we have no proprietary product. We use, you know, stocks, ETFs, mutual funds, whatever sort of will accomplish the return objectives of the client. So we have no conflicts of interest.
3: And why did you specifically decide to structure yourselves this way?
0: You know, I think the U.S. may be a little bit further ahead of Asia in terms of the service model. And years and years ago, I actually worked close to the strategy group at Schwab, and one of our assignments was to figure out where the industry was going. And what I recognized was that the client was really going to become the focal point over time, less, you know, should you buy Coke or Pepsi? And so when we designed our service delivery model, it was very heavily weighted on the client's needs and less around what can we convince them to buy.
3: So am I to glean from that then uh, we should really be careful when we use uh, uh, the services of wealth management providers here because they're not acting in the interest of the client
0: so I don't know I can't speak to that I certainly wouldn't accuse him of that but I would argue that if the us is the ghost of Christmas future then you'll see more personal financial service um, more asset allocation discussion in Asia in the future just as it matured in the United States and in the United States In the 1980s, it was all product-driven. It was all big brokerage shop-driven, and and the investor preferences sort of matured beyond that. So it may just be early innings in terms of the way that people perceive service models here.
3: And, David, why is the U.S. the ghost of Christmas future? I mean, we've had wealth management companies in Europe from – Time immemorial?
0: Uh, that's a good question, Richard. You have an answer for that?
3: <laughs> Richard, you want to jump in?
0: Well, I, I don't know. I, I'm
4: chewing through in my mind the fact that the last 25 years I've been thinking in, in Asia, why don't clients pay for their investment advice? They go to a the doctor, they pay a fee. They go to the accountant, they pay a fee. They want investment advice, they, they still don't pay a fee. So uh, we struggle a lot with, with this in Asia. And I suppose if you were speaking to a client who hasn't who's paid on commissions and has felt he's paid almost nothing. What would you say to him to get him to actually say give me a fee and then the rest of it will be uh
0: if you like without any hidden fees attached um it's it's heavy lifting i mean you've got to re-educate a marketplace to a certain extent and i think especially you know listening to the china discussions there's a sprint mentality there's a expectation of very high rates of return you know i think in the u.s we've sort of gotten to more of an annuity model where you recognize if you can grind out eight percent over a long period of time and And have a savings discipline that supports that, uh, then then you can accomplish your financial goals. It just feels a little bit more like a a trader's psychology in the marketplace. Do you find there are certain clients who may be focused on fees? For instance, a large family might be more inclined to pay a fee than, say, wealthy individuals. Here's the funny thing about it. So when we polled high net worth, but this is again back when I was working with Schwab, but when we polled high net worth individuals in the United States and said, what do you care about most? Number one was trust, right? And the question is, do you want to go to a cheap doctor or do you want to go to a doctor that can solve your cancer, right? And so i don 't think I think the perception is at least on the wealth management side that the marketplace is extremely fee sensitive. I think on the investment side, the asset management side that 's probably true but if 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 I told you you know I will guarantee that by your hundredth birthday all your financial hopes and dreams will come true and you 'll take care of your wife and you 'll educate your kids, would you pay me for that? The answer is, yeah, I'll pay you for that. So I think it's, again, the way that we package the value, which is much more about helping you as your personal chief financial officer. We're not distributors of investment returns. Now, you're an independent uh, asset manager, but – what we tend to find in Asia is that the big guys are collecting all the asset. Is, is that happening in the States? Or the there? exact opposite is happening in the States, which is very in- interesting. So our industry really has only been around as independence and technology enabled us um, for about 25, call it 30 years at most. And over that time period, the large kind of big box brokers have been surrendering market share to boutique firms and the reason is because the u.s investors especially after they get scorned during the financial crisis don't trust the brands anymore and so if you hire waddell and associates you can look me in the eye you can read my body language and you can know whether i'm a charlatan or not you know the ceo of merrill lynch probably isn't going to take your call
3: As a client, David, uh, if I wanted to assess, uh, you know, what would be cheaper for me in the long term, i.e. paying fees or, you know, uh, hiring a, a company which works on a commission basis, how much time would I need to spend with you as a client to make a fair assessment?
0: You know, that's really interesting because the the banks and the brokerage firms and the traditional sort of providers have so many different ways of of getting you with fees that it's almost impossible to analyze some of the complexes. And and when you do see the analysis, you know, inside annuities, for instance, it's hard to – inside insurance products to understand what the prevailing fee structure is. You know, the trade fees and the commissions over time have been compressed specifically by technology, but there are lots of different ways within a commission-based structure – to assess fees, many of which may not even be recognized by the end client.
3: All right, David. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is David Waddle, and he is the CEO of Waddle & Associates. Time to take another quick look at the numbers before we wrap up the show. The Nikkei is down four-tenths of a percent to 20,603. Australia's ASX 200 is down 0.07% to 5,577. And solds cost down six tenths of a percent to 2052. Gold currently stands at $1,088.70 per ounce, and Brent crude oil at $55.54. Well, here we are at the end of a week. Richard, what should we be looking out for in the financial markets as we head into the next week?
4: Well, you know, the Greece story is just about over. The big question could actually be interest rates. I mean, the uh, key Friday fact I had for today was that jobless claims, uh, 255000 announced last night, are the lowest in 40 years. Now, um, I'm sure you can't remember that far back, really, but um, uh, I was still in island school in Hong Kong. So that implies unemployment is actually getting quite low. And that was one of Janet Yellen's key issues in terms of raising interest rates. So uh, I think the interest rate story is going to start to come and... Uh, uh, bite us back in the not too distant future.
3: Goodness. All right. Well, uh, I guess we'll be talking interest rates next week or starting next week or continuing next week. All right, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Richard Harris is the CEO of Port Shelter Investment Management. And I'm Rinita Malhotra Hora, wrapping up for this morning's edition of Money for Nothing. And of course, a big thank you to our producer, Sandra Lamb. The weather forecast today will be cloudy with scattered showers and a few squally thunderstorms. Showers will be heavy at times in the morning. The temperature right now is 28 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 86%. Time for the half News summary with Judd Boaz. President Obama
1: says the biggest frustration of his presidency has been his inability to get strong gun control laws. In an exclusive interview with the BBC, Mr Obama expressed his irritation at how far behind the country was compared to other developed nations.
4: The United States of America is the one advanced nation on Earth in which we do not have sufficient common-sense gun safety laws... Uh, even in the face of repeated mass killings. Uh, And, you know, if you look at the number of Americans killed since 9-11 by terrorism, it's less than 100. If you look at the number that have been killed by gun violence, it's in the tens of thousands.
1: U.S. officials say Turkey has allowed American military planes to use the Turkish airbase at Incirlik in its campaign against Islamic State militants in Iraq and Syria. The BBC's Jane O'Brien reports from Washington.
5: The deal comes as Turkey's involvement in the Syrian crisis has deepened in recent days. A suicide bomber with suspected ties to Islamic State killed 32 people in the border town of Saruj, and state media is reporting that Turkish jets hit IS targets in Syria after a militant opened fire on a border post killing a Turkish soldier. If confirmed, that would be the first direct combat between Turkish forces and Islamic State fighters. Allowing the U.S. to use the Incirlik base would broaden the reach of aerial assaults on the extremist group and help Turkey protect its 800-kilometre border with Syria.
1: The U.S. Secretary of State, John Kerry, has hit back at Republican critics of the nuclear deal struck with Iran, saying it was fantasy to suggest any better agreement had been possible. At a Senate committee hearing in Washington, Mr. Kerry said... negotiations.